Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Joseph Stewart. In Sewing the Sacred, Mexican Pentecostal Farmworkers in California, Lloyd Daniel Barba traces the development of Pentecostalism among Mexican-American migrant laborers in California's agricultural industry from the 1910s to the 1960s. He argues that these Pentecostal farmworkers carved out a robust socio-religious existence despite terrible conditions, and in doing so produced a vast record of cultural vibrancy. Examining racialized portrayals of Mexican workers and their religious lives through images created by farm workers themselves, Sewing the Sacred draws on oral histories, photographs, and materials from new archival collections to tell an intimate story of sacred placemaking and showing how these workers mapped out churches, performed outdoor baptisms in grower-controlled waterways, and built and maintained houses of worship in the fields. This book considers the role that historical memory plays in telling these stories. Dr. Lloyd Barba, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Joseph, for having me. Really honored to be here and glad to chat about this book. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And you've written a marvelous book. And I was curious, how did you come to write Sewing the Sacred? Yeah, it really goes back to my history capstone seminar at the University of the Pacific after I did my undergrad, where it was my undergrad in uh, or BA in history and religious studies. And we were encouraged to think about local history. So in that way, the seeds of the project were there uh, for the first time. I started thinking comparatively about Pentecostal churches in Stockton, California, and how a lot of them still fell along the lines of race and ethnicity. So I wanted to know why. And even before the book, right, there was a dissertation. And in the dissertation, I compared Dust Bowl or aka Oki migrants, farm workers who arrived in California in the 30s, 40s, and so on, to Mexican Pentecostal farm workers. And I amassed quite a bit of material. And it was also quite evident that, I mean, there are at least two big studies to do in that dissertation alone. So I ended up taking about 15 to 20% of the dissertation and used that to write Sewing the Sacred. And it was through archival research at Fuller Theological Seminary. Actually, research might not actually describe it. We were processing and collecting two archives. Ended up being about 211 boxes of material. And one of the donors, Milka Montanez Viscara, who I referenced quite a bit in the book, she put me in touch with interviewees. And later down the line, a man named Manuel Ares put me in, in touch with other interviewees and kind of just snowballed from there. Interviews took me all over California and one as far as Coral Gables in Florida. So yeah, it was, again, history, capstone project, a dissertation, and then kind of just funneled down to this project specifically on Mexican Pentecostal farm workers. Perfect. And that's a reminder to those of us who teach the importance of encouraging those undergrads who have really great projects as they move forward. And in reading Sewing the Sacred, it made me think about how both Latino, Latina, Latinx religious histories and Pentecostal histories are both relatively sparse so far as American religious history goes. So with what scholarship or who did you rely upon when beginning the historiographical research for your book? Oh, goodness. That's a tough one. It's a good question. I mean, many folks can relate to this with respect to their own set of interlocutors. But for those of us who work in Latino religious history, you're sort of caught in between fields of research. So to give you an example, in writing about Mexican Pentecostal farm workers in California had to be conversing with foundational texts in Mexican-American history, Pentecostal history, 
history of farm workers and some California history, right? As far as Pentecostalism goes, I mean, it's one of those situations where you have to know some of the foundational texts, like by Grant Wacker, Donald Dayton, Vincent Sinan. For Latino history, worked quite a bit with the work by Vicky Ruiz and also uh, David Gutierrez on farm workers, worked by historians Deborah Weber and Richard Stephen Street, and also geographer Don Mitchell, who did some really great work on understanding the place of farm workers, the significance of farm workers operating in this early 20th century, the kind of pressures against them, Red Scare, and so on and so forth. And also great work, recent work by Veronica Martina Matsuda on spatial arrangement of the farm worker camps. And of course, work on braceros. So what's the foundational stuff? Ernesto Galarza's work on the braceros and more recent work by Mireya Losa and Lori Flores. Again, I won't even mention the interlocutors in California history, but it's often the case that much of Latino history gets classified as labor history. And that makes sense under the historical circumstances of immigration, industrial ag in California. But I wanted to examine the lives of farm workers, what their lives are like in the social spaces they created within the context of these farm labor camps. So at the end of the day, one is left wondering, you know, about who in Pentecostal studies will read this, who in, you know, Latinx history will read this. That's kind of the bigger set of literature. Then there's Dan Ramirez, Arlene Sanchez, Washka, Sonis Mendoza, who've written on the history of Mexican Pentecostals. And so that was quite helpful. Yeah. And I think it reveals just how much work goes into a dissertation at all is figuring out how you can speak to so many different groups. One of the aspects of your work that I really enjoyed was that you use lived religion often as a framework, which often I see in Puritan history, but also in Roman Catholic history. So how did you use to use the lived religion framework to reveal the religious lives and logics of Mexicans and Mexican-American Pentecostals when that hadn't necessarily been done before. Yeah, that's another one of those things where the materials looking at the folks I was interviewing, kind of what they're describing just kind of demanded that I, I consider the material culture. So that's really what lured me in. So once I started to read the archival materials and started to process the oral histories as really a telling of material religion, it fundamentally altered how I would tell the story. So I think on the one hand, we know that farm labor is very, very physical work. On the other hand, Pentecostals spiritualize their stories, either through testimony or their written word or through preaching and so on. And that contradiction of very physical labor over spiritualizing of stories and history kind of left this ostensible contradiction. And that left me restless. Like, how do I tell the history of the spiritual in this context of the very physical? And so lived religion, material religion was the best way for me to proceed with that. Yeah. And also along those material religion lines, I was really fascinated by the way that you show in several different circumstances how migrants made things or made geography or made the actions that they were taking sacred. What does it mean to make something sacred? Yeah. So making something sacred in this case, you know, that could evince a sense of permanence, ownership, consecration. And it has quite a bit to do with the context we're talking about. So industrial agriculture was set up to keep folks on the move or to deal them at least a good measure of uprootedness. And the act of farm workers building a church, for example, consecrated as their own, reads as an act of resistance in that they're trying to find a permanent place through, you know, the building of an adobe brick church. It's permanence. Uh, some of the churches they built back in the period that I studied from the 19-teens and 1960s, some of those churches still stand. And again, this is their building for themselves a sense of place under conditions in which that was largely denied to them. Almost like this recurring sort of thread in, in the book of nevertheless. And nevertheless, is kind of a refrain, if you will, of, you know, finding unexpected acts in unexpected places. And I'm not the first one to describe industrial ag as, you know, being exploitative or the scandalous nature of it. You can look at John Steinbeck's 
work, Kerry McWilliams' work on what he called factories in the field. You know, the days of the yeoman farmer were long past California. And so to understand the sacred, you have to understand the profane, and it's not the Eliadin source of it, a sense of the word. It's the profane is informed by the context which bodies are injured. This, it's, the context is rife with exploitation. And to produce the sacred in those conditions really was pointing me to thinking seriously about lived religion and what it meant to make things sacred. Well, thank you so much for that answer and would love to dive into the book now that we've looked at a few big picture questions. So how did the first Mexican and Mexican-American Pentecostal converts in California map their path into their adopted religion? Meaning, how did they make sense of this geography and, and make it sacred? Yeah, I mean, goodness, the geography of industrial ag, it's a dizzying place. It's vast, McWilliams' famous term, right? Factories in the fields. And so using Grant Wacker's idea of the primitive and the pragmatic impulses of early Pentecostalism, I saw how farm workers approached their place in migrant labor somewhat similarly. So when I was first reading the 1966 commemorative volume of the Apostolic Assembly of the Faith in Christ Jesus, I started to notice, oh, we'll call it some generous appropriation of phrases, the sequence of events as told in the New Testament book, the Acts of the Apostles. So I came to conclude the first part of the volume reads not as the Acts of the Apostles, but as a 20th century version that I call the Acts of the Apostolicos. So they saw their wanderings as opportunities to work miracles, to evangelize, or as the parlance goes, to win souls. Back in the sense that, you know, uprootedness doesn't give rise to founding communities, but it was their sense of always being on the go, having to travel from one place to the next, that really founded some of these communities. I'll just share one quick line of one man, Pedro Banderas, who arrives at Half Moon Bay, or what he called in the source, Media Luna, says something along the lines of, I saw that the Lord had there, at the peat pickers camp, mind you, many souls that needed to be saved. And that's how he viewed the environment, which is drastically different than, you know, looking out and seeing so-called stoop laborers working with the tools that were later banned because of, you know, the toll that it would take on bodies. I was also fascinated when you discussed baptism, which most listeners will recognize as a Christian ritual. So how did these Mexican and Mexican-American Pentecostals, also called apostolicos, as you say, use baptism and the waters they baptized in? to create new individual and communal identities within their new faith. It's pretty simple in this case, where if you're baptized, you're in, and if you're not baptized, you're not in. It is the premier ritual for early Pentecostals, but especially one as Pentecostals. So this kind of points back to a history in 1916, when one as Pentecostals break off the Assemblies of God, and it's over the question of baptism and performed the formula in Jesus' name as one goes in the water, or Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And for one as Pentecostals, this became a point of contention and a point, you know, that along with questions about Trinitarian nature of God, they're willing to break off the early fellowship. It kind of became a point of an identity marker for them. To be baptized meant that you were part of the body and a body that, you know, like a lot of early Pentecostal groups were willing to break off if things didn't seem to be doctrinally pure, you know, according to how they defined it. And yeah, these baptisms, I was just struck that so many of them took place in these canals, in the rivers, these places that are known to be notoriously filled with pesticides. And they just were very pragmatic. It was kind of like, you might be familiar with the eunuch in Acts 8 who says, look, here's water that hinders me from being baptized. That kind of approach. Yeah, it's something that throughout the book, I think you capture so well, is that pragmatism or the sense that we're going to use what we have to resist, to become better individuals and better people, 
and create new lives for ourselves. And something else that you capture really well is this idea of mobility, because often the folks that you're talking about are moving across borders, uh, either to different jobs in different seasons, or between Mexico and California, between different families, the family that they have in Mexico or the families that they have in California. And you discuss how they're creating sacred spaces in tents, in churches, but also in the fields. So how did they make mobile sites into sacred spaces? And was mobility a positive thing or an obstacle for the apostolicos? Yeah, good question, Joey. I mean, that's a tough one. So I came to conclude that it was always an op obstacle, but it continued to have these unintended consequences of carrying their message to new places. And again, these are folks who were very pragmatic about this, right? There's a body of water we can baptize there. There's a field. Oh, and we can pull together some money and put up a tent that they called Carpas, and with that, raise up a house of worship. And these are tents, mind you, that were meant to be used on the go. So they're not tents that we might think of like the old tent revivals in the South or, you know, back 19th century and also 20th century also. Tent revivals, they weren't as elaborate. They were sometimes, you know, tarp strewn together to just give a covering. In one tent, I have a photo of it in chapter three of the book. It was a building, the, the sides of it were made with wood, but basically this tarp was thrown on top. And that was the house of worship. And so they approached that very pragmatically. And the nice thing about the tent too, you can tear it down and break it up, set it up again. And when you took off to the next field, you could erect a tent once again. Yeah. So this was something that I found really interesting because in American Christianity, we so often focus on churches and on brick and mortar places of worship and don't necessarily think about mobility in this way. But these Mexican-American Pentecostals really viewed themselves within the biblical narrative with this, didn't they? Absolutely. And even the idea of setting up the tent, breaking down the tent, it lent itself to this metaphor of being in the wilderness. So I have a whole section on the wilderness of California agriculture. Again, they set up these tents. The goal is always to build an adobe brick church. That doesn't always happen, though, especially as congregations are on the move. But yeah, they see themselves squarely within the biblical narratives and we're continuing that. Or as I said, you know, the Acts of the Apostolicos. They see what's in Scripture, and they see themselves as kind of stepping into the shoes of the biblical prophets, apostles, disciples, and so on. Maybe the most provocative chapter to me was when you look at the women who helped to build Mexican-American Pentecostalism in California. So what did they do in their labors, and how had their labor been obscured in the historical record? So you had asked that question previously about making space sacred, and that was one of the two major things within the scope of this of chapter four in the book that women did. They produced the sacred. And what I mean by that is they were the ones in charge of making the places of worship. Again, a tent, a couple of wooden walls with a tarp on top, a full-blown church. Or they also had this other term, templecito, a little temple, basically a chapel. And they made those sites look holy. So it was through artisanal decor, such as banners with these elaborate scriptural phrases, these doilies that were white and were supposed to give a sense of purity and a whole host of just hand-sewn items. That's part of it to make the place look holy. I couldn't help as I was thinking about and writing about that, the sense to which this sounds a lot like, you know, folks in Latinx studies know as rasquache, kind of art that's made from the position of the have-nots, the position from below that scholars have combined as being both resilient and has a sense of attitude to it. It offers a disenfranchised group a sense of dignity. And so they made these sites look sacred. And also, without the sell of tamales, women were the ones producing the tamales and 
and largely the ones selling the titamales, they wouldn't have the funds to build these churches. Again, we're talking about farm workers who are at the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder in, in California. And without the tamales, it's simple. You don't have the churches. Mostly everyone that I interviewed had a story about the tamales and how they were built upon the sale of tamales. And that is the work of women. So I came to conclude that you can't tell a material history of this movement without also telling a woman's history. Well, I would say you're absolutely right. And for those folks looking for different ways of thinking about finances, food, celebration, material culture, and religion. I think that that chapter would pair really well with Alyssa Maldonado Estrada's chapter on the money that's made in the various festivals and carnivals in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So to be a nerd sommelier, those are two things that might go together. I'll add this too, Joey. You basically get a recipe for tamales in the chapter. I was relaying the details of, you know, the intensive labor that goes behind it. So Bam, free recipe. Another thing that I was really struck by, and we've talked about the way that these Pentecostals are looking to biblical narrative, but as they move into the second and a half, third generation of Pentecostals, there's also a sense of nostalgia that seems to come out within the community. So what is nostalgia as you use it in the book? And what are they nostalgic for? So the way I came to think about nostalgia, more than just mere remembrance of the past, it's a remembrance of the past that's packed with a sort of pining for something that's lost or that's been diminished. And that gives a sense that things used to be better. And I thought this is a bit ironic, again, given the their socioeconomic circumstances at the time, it would suggest that no, things actually weren't better. They were far worse. The, the nostalgia wasn't for the kind of work that they did. I think it's more the conditions of being impoverished, being on the go, and the extreme need, if you will, the dire need to set to uh, cultivate a sense of community gave rise to a couple of key features. And interviewees consistently would mention these. So their nostalgia revolved around music. So this is music that is largely hymns, corridos that are largely produced by folks in the denomination. And that's what I called the sounds, and this might be a thing a common in Mormon study as well, right? That women used to dress holier. That idea seemed to stem from the photos that were republished in commemorative volumes where women are dressed in these, what they call these dusters, these all white tunics that, you know, cover a vast majority of the body. You know, this is what they used to wear. I mean, but upon closer inspection, that's what was worn for special services or for when the choir performed. And so they kind of lent itself this kind of undue sense of they were holier because this is how you used to dress. Like that wasn't quite the case, at least not for those reasons, right? Right? And so that sites because, you know, they would look back and envision the past, S-I-G-H-T-S sites. And finally, the last one quickly, place, S-I-T-E-S sites, right? How they would travel from one field to the next and travel in bands sometimes and form new, these kind of microcolonias, if you will, of having to cultivate a sense of community. And in some cases, there were communities, one in just west of Modesto in a place called Grayson, where they built homes, and another one in Salinas, where they also built homes close to where they had built their church. Yeah, and just to relate it a little bit to Mormon studies, and I think that this goes for a lot of denominations, which is that once a group becomes accepted, you start to look back to the good old days. Those were when they really had to live their faith. That's when it was so much harder to do so, sort of the walking to school uphill both ways in the the snow, the sort of Jeremiah about how much better things used to be for faith rather than the sort of comfort that folks had settled into. Comfort being a relative phrase here. Right. It's like wine, right? The older is better. 
I like cheese. The older is better. I had a few questions before we wrap up the interview. The first is, what would you say to those currently considering projects on lived or material religion or on transnational religious history? Yeah, so I'll answer first lived religion, material religion part. So for those thinking about project on lived religion, again, yeah, do think closely about material religion. I've seen some of those impressive history come from this field. So here I'm thinking, you know, early readings in the work by Colleen McDaniel, whose work even back in the 90s really opened up new fields of inquiry. Ditto uh, Bob Orsi's work on the Madonna 115th Street in New York. Often it's the, you know, to the chagrin of historians, we're looking back for material, but we don't have the archive. We don't have the written archive. It's not in an institutional archive. I went to Berkeley to do archival research. I went to UCLA to do archival research and nothing. I think I actually took away one short line from each of those massive collections of the archives. But I had to ask questions about practices, questions about rituals, questions about how did you build a church? Again, tamales, right? And so, especially for groups that didn't have the privilege to, you know, have a robust denominational bureaucracy where you have minutes that are recorded at all the, all the meetings, you have widely circulated periodical, you got to turn to oral histories, you got to know what questions to ask about material religion, people's lived experiences in these different spaces. So yeah, I think it behooves scholars of, of religion, historians to take up material religion. As far as the transnationalism goes, I'm glad you asked that. I'm actually just working on some material on and so articles on approaching transnational religious groups. And my answer is similar in some respects. So there's quite a bit of writing about the importance of remittances among immigrant uh, transnational groups. And remittances often thought of in terms of finances, which is true, right? We get a whole lot of money wiring to Latin America through Western Union and all these other channels. But how about the cultural artifacts of remittances, the music that gets sent back and forth? with the ideas, the ways of doing church, and one place to look at this, at the digital spaces online, to think that so much of transnational exchanges do happen on, I'm thinking about some of the early studies call it, right? The cyberspace, just the internet, right? Social media. But yeah, not just money, but the exchange of goods, cultural goods, cultural items, ideas of how to do church. Love that. So now that you mention it, what are you working on now that looks at transnational religious groups? Religious transnationalism. So there's quite a bit of good literature on the 1980s sanctuary movement. And that's after having taught a class on the sanctuary movement, having published some articles, it's really caught my attention that this is a much more transnational movement. And it's a movement that thrives on transnational networks. As folks from, particularly from Guatemala and El Salvador, move through Mexico into the U.S. and some going as far north as Canada, are able to flee the violence of civil war in Central America. And so, yeah, the project is looking at the U.S. sanctuary movement from the perspective of religious history and immigration history. Those two together, I think, really uh, just naturally give rise to think seriously about transnational religious immigrant networks. And then for those who are looking to get their hands on a copy of your book, do you have a discount code for those who might want to purchase the book from Oxford University Press? Yes. So the discount code is A-A-F, as in Francisco, L, as in Lloyd, Y, as in Yak, G6. So A-A-Fly, G6. That's a discount code. It'll get you 30% off. Well, Dr. Lloyd Barba, thanks for coming by to discuss your book, Sewing the Sacred, Mexican Pentecostal Farm Workers in California from Oxford University Press. We look forward to what you publish next. Thanks, Joey.